Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real-life talent initiatives. This podcast is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I dig into successes, challenges, and lessons learned from a very practical, not theoretical point of view. You'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. Have you ever been frustrated by a small talent pool, a lack of qualified candidates, or by hiring managers fixated on candidates having certain degrees or credentials? If yes, this episode is for you. My guest is Lou Adler. Lou is the CEO and founder of Performance-Based Hiring Learning Systems, a consulting and training firm helping recruiters and hiring managers around the world source, interview, and hire the strongest and most diverse talent. He is an author and LinkedIn learning trainer and a prolific blogger. Please see the links in the show notes for all of the details about where to find him. And so allow me to present to you my conversation with Lou. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell, and today I'm joined by Lou Adler. Lou is CEO of the Adler Group. The Adler Group is creator of a performance-based hiring learning system. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today, Lou. Welcome. Thank you very much, Lisa, for inviting me. I look forward to chatting with you. Absolutely. My pleasure. So, So let's begin, as I typically do, with sharing with our listeners a little bit about your professional background. You've had an interesting journey. Yeah, well, actually, it was real weird because I didn't, I've been a recruiter in the recruiting space for 40, 45 years now. But my first 10 years in industry, I was in engineering, manufacturing, budgeting and planning, logistics and supply chain. Had a lot of jobs. I just said, hey, I want to do that. I want to do that. And people let me do it. But then I got one job was running a small manufacturing company and had a group president who he and I clashed. I was pretty much a wise acre kid. Every two weeks, he came down to the office and I yelled and screamed at him, and he yelled and screamed at me, and I quit and finally gave a six-month notice, quit four times, and decided to become an executive recruiter, only really to look for another job. But as I got into executive recruiting, I realized it was a business process. You could actually, if you followed certain rules and regulations, there was a lot of emotion and human nature in it, but there was some actual practical business and science, and I kind of captured that, and that eventually became performance-based hiring. Wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit about, you know, your definition of performance-based hiring. Well, let me kind of give it as a story. I've given this story before. My first search assignment, which I think really sets the stage, was for a plant manager in the automotive industry. And I knew the president of the company. And because I gave six months notice, I kind of went out in the industry and people I knew would say, I'm going to become a recruiter, which a lot of people thought was pretty dumb. And in some way, I kind of thought it was a little dumb, too, at the time, but I decided to give it a shot and support my wife. But the first assignment I took was for a plant manager in the automotive industry. And the president, when he said, hey, Lou, welcome aboard or welcome. Here's the project. I need someone with 10 to 15 years experience, this kind of degree, this kind of engineering background, this kind of manufacturing background, this kind of industry experience, these kind of personality traits. And I just list this. It was handwritten, I think. Maybe some of it was tight, but... And I said, Mike, that's not a job description. That's a person description. 
A job doesn't have skills, experience, and competencies. A job has stuff that people need to do. Let's put the person description in the parking lot. What do you want the person to do? So this is my manufacturing and engineering background. It's just, it was such a logical question. <laughs> Let's talk about the job, not the person doing the job. He said, well, that's kind of interesting. He said, I want someone to turn around the plant. So we walked out in the plant. It was a big plant, 250,000 square feet, I guess, or so. And we walked through the plant. Uh, Two-thirds of it was manufacturing, a little bit of warehousing. The layout of the plant was terrible. The machining processes were clumsy, a lot of scrap. Labor performance was marginal. The quality control you could see was sloppy. So we just came up with six or seven things on how the person had to turn around the plant in terms of profit and manufacturing process improvements over the course of the year, 12 to 18 months. That, no we're doing, about a month later, we found a candidate and they hired somebody. I've never used, after 1,500 search projects, sometimes we do them ourselves, sometimes we help other companies. I always ask the question, what does this person need to do to be successful? I've never used the job description listing skills, experience, and competencies. Now, obviously, we have to, so that's the first step is how do you define the work? Second right. step, we got to find candidates who not are competent and motivated to do that work. And I tell my clients, we're never going to compromise on the work. Just the mix and skills experience, give me a break there because that's the variable. The work isn't a variable that you have to get done. And if they can do the work, they have all the skills and experience. On the other side, if you want a good person, they have to see that jobs are career move. So pre-qualifying candidates requires two sides to the coin. So we just really spent a lot of time talking to semifinalists, not anybody else, just those two. Now we've got to interview those candidates properly. So that's the third step. Obviously, the candidate has to be competent and motivated to do that work in that environment and see that jobs are career move. And the fourth step is the close. Rarely will companies have the most money to offer, but if they have the best career opportunity to offer, then it's a win. They've, obviously, the comp package got to be competitive. It is, yeah. One that's above a threshold, the other stuff matters more. And I tell candidates, no, look at this as a one to two to three year career move. That's where your growth will take place. Yeah, I know the comp in year one and the start date has to be competitive, but look at this as a growth opportunity with a competitive comp, not just what you get on the start date. So that was the issue. And I see too many candidates focus on the start date with not a real insight with respect to the job itself and where it's going. And in my mind, that's really caused Number one, lack of job satisfaction and also the cause of the great resignation. Always looking for something, but they don't know what they're looking for. And I think performance-based hiring defines a process of what to look for to get career growth and from both the candidate standpoint and the company standpoint. Yeah, I really appreciate that you're coming at it from both perspectives, right? Because it takes two to tango and both sides need to get some satisfaction through the process. You know what else it makes me think of is, is this wasn't the result of coming through an interview process necessarily, but I left a 10-year you know, job career in a really great, great company, Franklin Templeton, and went somewhere, which is no longer in business, by the way, I left before they went under, it was Sears Canada. But I went from a director role to a director role. And there was there was a change in the allocation of compensation, but but the net there was no net difference, essentially. So I didn't take a haircut, but I didn't get an increase necessarily. But the reason I went, it was a former mentor and leader of mine who had reached out, you know, it wasn't a formal interview process, but she was able to paint the picture of just what was in it for me in terms of growth, because I had 60 people in my downstream and I had multiple geographic locations and so on. And it was a really, really important stepping stone, I would say, for my next role, which which was at the VP level. So I appreciate what you're saying, right, is is helping people sort of map out, like, what's the value proposition? What's what I say? It's a trust on both sides. I mean, you knew this person and you trusted her and she trusted you. And it's the same thing. When you don't know somebody, it's a risk to hire somebody. 
that's why when you th- we think we really emphasize the opportunity of networking, but it's also clarity of expectations. You can develop that trust as a, again, remember the third party recruiter is always kind of the go between on these. So if that person's not trusting and how do you develop trust? Well, if the recruiter knows the hiring manager knows the job in a company and then can relay that to the candidate as well. There's a trust built just on knowledge, not just on, I'll call it the hustle. And I think too many people in the recruiting hustle to close the job and put it, it definitely puts a bad taste in the whole process and increases the likelihood that there's going to be a mistake made somewhere. Right. So, so do you, so would you say in, in, when you're training people in, in organizations, are you training mainly third party recruiters or in your system, or is it people within, you know, recruiters that are inside organizations? Well, it could be both. I actually, it's both. we okay. have a program, we call it the case study, is we really like recruiters and hiring managers to work together on a search project. So we train hiring managers and recruiters. We do it independently and together. And we do third-party recruiters and company recruiters. But the best is when recruiters and hiring managers work on a search project and go through each one. Let's define the job and let's know it. Let's go find semi-finalists. Let's go interview candidates. Let's debrief them in a panel. Let's show how it works and let's close together. When they do it together, they actually learn it. It's kind of a hands-on as opposed to a lecture. Most training in my mind, even our tra- I think our training is great, but if you do it independently and don't do it, it's just training. But when you actually do it in the field and actually talk to candidates and actually mess up and have candidates say no and can't get the referral, you really learn when you're actually doing it. So learn by doing is the right way to do it and making mistakes along the way is part of the learning process. Here, here. Absolutely. Applied learning all the way. I love it. Okay. So so we started to, I want to dig in a little bit further to some of the par- parts of your process here. So, you know, you started with how do you define the work? So instead of, you know, coming up with a person description, let's get an actual job description around what do we want the person to do? So, so what would you, could you give us a couple of examples to paint the picture of, you know, a, you know the job description that is more of a person description that you've seen recently and how you would tweak it to be? Well, let me give you one from about 20 years ago and one from about two weeks ago. Okay, great. It gives you the whole idea of why managers fight this. So I, it was an assignment. I had worked with one company and that president of that company was on the board of another company. He said, Lou, our CEO is looking for a VP marketing. He doesn't know what he's looking for. And he said, and you might get the search assignment. So this was a big search assignment. It was when the internet was really exploding and that uh, 2002 through around that time frame. So I wanted to see this fellow up in Silicon Valley, California. And he was telling, I want an MBA from top school like Stanford, double E from a top school of Caltech or Stanford, should have a master's degree in at least 10 years in this business. And he he said, then he was kind of complaining that I said, why are you you even here? Have you ever done a search like that? Have you ever done this? How many people do you know? And he was really giving me the riot act and didn't allow me there, which is not uncommon. But the chairman was this guy that I knew, so he kind of had to do it. And I said, Lee, just let me ask you this question. You've hired a person over the course of a year, and he turns out to be exactly what you want. And you're in front of the board a year from today, and you want to give this fellow a bigger bonus or more stock options. What does a person accomplish that you can fully state this is a great person? And this is like a half hour entry. He said, Adler, you finally asked me a smart question. This is what he said. You're finally... Uh, <laughs> And he said, I want this person 
The biggest thing, a three-year product roadmap that details exactly where the technology is going, exactly the take take product lines we can offer, and using our engineering and leveraging our engineering talent and just filling in some critical positions where we have voids. This person's got to know that inside and out. And I said, okay, what if I could find someone who's done that work? And I will not compromise on that work. They've done that kind of work but they don't have a necessarily the MBA from Stanford. I know they got to be a good business person, so I'm not compromising. Maybe they, I know they have to have strong technology. I don't know where the degree is. They certainly have to know the internet space and be able to c- converse with engineers. So I won't compromise on that. They have to do a, something complicated and similar. Would you at least see the person? He said, absolutely. Yes. Okay. No, no I just, he said, I just told you that. I mean, it was like he went from berating me completely to once I had him walk through what the job was. So the first step is the big project. And then the, then there's a series of sub-steps. Sub-step might be in the first 30, 60, 90 days, understand the business. Next 30, 60 days, lay that into a trend of where the product line is going, mesh the two together, put together and get board approval within six months for a plan, and then begin implementing the plan. But there's a sequence of steps that you go through once you have a big project. So that's kind of the way it works, is you just define the work in a sequence of steps. I had someone else who said last week, I need someone who's really got great communication skills. I'm seeing all these people with accents. They don't have great communication skills. Uh, And I said, wait a second, Steve, give me a break. Where do they need good communication skills? What does that look like on the job? He said, well, they've got to make presentations to my executive team and our board of advisors at least once a month. I said, fine, I won't compromise on that. So we'll get examples of a person making executive presentations on where your business is going and how profits being improved as a COO role. And we won't compromise on that, but don't make some idiotic comment. And I did say this to the guy because that works. And I do say this. I, I would not use my in-your-face approach to get this. You can be much more diplomatic. But the idea was, is you convert a competency or skill or behavior into what does this look like on the job? Yeah. And once you do that, then that becomes the measure. And I think this is where bias and problems occur is because managers and recruiters don't know what this looks like in the real world. Why does a recruiter want to know what this looks like in the real world? Because that opens a pool to everybody who can do the work. And it takes away some of those biases. Now, I used to get a lot of pushback from HR people. Oh, you can't do that. It's illegal. I talked to the number one labor attorney in the United States from Littler Mendelssohn, which is number one labor firm in the U.S. And he went through my book, Hire With Your Head, and he said, this is the perfect way to open up the talent pool to everybody by focusing on outcomes, which are equally as objective as five to 10 years experience, which sound objective, but why is it three years experience? Why is it not 20 years experience? It's just because you put a number before some subjective criteria doesn't really make it objective. In fact, it actually narrows the pool to people. And his comment was, it's much better to define the work as a series of performance objectives rather than a list of skills, experience, and competence. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm sort of getting the giggles over here, Lou, because I'm thinking about, you know, both myself and then, and then you know, training teams of, of talent acquisition professionals about how we we want to work with hiring managers to figure out like like let's define what would we see if we were looking in the window at someone who's successful what are they actually accomplishing what's yeah, happening exactly what are the what outcomes right. right versus you know you, you want them to come from a particular school or have a certain number of years of experience and hiring managers often fight that it is kind of tricky for them because it's harder they actually have to think a little more critically right and and have a, a, a vision about what that could look like so I, I appreciate the struggle. Yeah, but equally as important, just on that point, yeah. if you look at a couple of studies, Gallup's Q12, which was the first first 
what hiring managers do the best, first break all the rules, yeah. is clarify expectations up front and hire mm-hmm. people who are competent and motivated to do that work. Now, I yeah. kind of fell into it because to me it was common sense, but there's a lot of studies that supported that. I mean, even Google's Project Oxygen. So there's a lot of studies that say, if you want to be a good manager, you got to tell people what they're doing, give them the resources to do it and support and develop them. I mean, in, and you look at all the reasons why people underperform, it's because of the lack of those three things. Now, I, didn't, yeah. I just did it because I was giving a one-year guarantee for my searches, so I just kind of fell into it. Hey, this is the way I'm going to have to do it if I want people to stay. But it wasn't done scientifically. It was done from a business point of view perspective. Right. Yes. Yeah. I hear you. Well, so, okay. So we've talked a bit more about, you know, defining the work and, and what the, the job description should actually look like. Now, getting into this piece around how to find the candidates. So you talked about pre-qualifying candidates and and trying to interview, like, I can't remember what, semi-finalists, I think. So how, what are, what are your tips? Like, what are the best practices around finding? Well, the thing is, when I look for a semi-final, so let's say, LinkedIn is an invaluable tool, but it's not in, but it's not invaluable the way most people use it. When you look at LinkedIn, it is a network of 800 million people, not a database of 800 million people. A database means you look for skills, experience, and competencies, and then send emails out. A network of 800 million people is, means, I don't know, how many connections do you have, Lisa, on your LinkedIn? Oh, I don't know, three, 3,500, something like that. Okay, so nonetheless is... I suspect there's a lot of, and you have a lot of network people in HR, right? Yeah. On your network. I bet if I have an HR director's level job in Canada or in your area, you probably know a great person. The likelihood that you're going to give me that person is remote. On the other hand, if I connect with you using LinkedIn Recruiter, I can actually search on candidates and ask you, hey, what do you think of Mary Smith? What do you think of Bill Jones? What do you think of Juanita Sanchez? You would say, oh, Juanita's great, but she's not looking. So, but could I use your name? So when you think about LinkedIn is a network and I, proactively I can, so I can search for semi-finalists on your, your connection. So I'm thinking of an HR spot I had in, which, and it's not your neck of the woods, but it was in central Michigan about a real search I had about seven or eight years ago. It was in central Michigan for a company about $500 million, division of another company growing in leaps and bounds. I had to find someone who had to relocate. There was nobody there. Had to relocate to this company. So I looked in Chicago, Detroit, Indianapolis for people who were directors of bigger companies and mm-hmm. offered them a VP level title. And I wrote a story. So I was looking for people. So number one, I wrote an ad. I looked for people from those areas. All I look for is directors of HR who were kind of like generalists. And I looked for people who are directors. So right away, and had some recognition. I don't think I looked for single sill. I just looked for the title and some kind of recognition that they were pretty good, meaning they spoke at a conference. They had some kind of award or some kind of honor in their background. Obviously, I think they, I looking in this case, I found so many that I said, okay, I want a speaker at a Sherm conference. I said, these people are pretty good. And then I wrote a letter. Hey, I got a company that needs someone to lead the complete turnaround and implementation of a huge HR system. If you're interested in something like that, and I was a little bit more clever than that because I talked about strategy and impact. <laughs> so I up the chat with you. So it was a pretty cool email, but I only sent it by 30 people that I found in those areas. Half of them responded in 24 hours. Yeah. I mean, they just loved the ad and they said, oh, I'll take to become a VP and spent three years. I'll have to relocate. Fine. So that was a semi-final. I knew they were good. They were from a credible company, had a good track record. They were recognized for their effort. And... 
from the candidate side, they'd see the job as a promotion and they could convince their family that, hey, <laughs> I'm risk we're all here because this is going to be, this is going to put us on a better career trajectory. All of those things. I think we found someone in a week and closed the deal four or five weeks later. I mean, it's, and LinkedIn gives you that capability. I didn't, imp- when I read the email, because I still show that email, I didn't put one skill in the email. We need someone to implement a complete HR system. If you, and I even said, don't send me a resume. Just, if you've done that, just give me a quick story of where you've done something like that. That's all I said. And we'll arrange a, conf- a conversation with the board. And that's what right. we did. It worked. What I love here, and I just want to, point out for for the uh, for the listeners is that you know this is a really great example of a very active and innovative way to recruit so instead of just waiting for candidates to to load up your atm of candidate resumes and so on so your candidate database and so on or your ats whatever you use i'm calling it an atm to be silly but you know instead of just waiting for people to enter in through that and then sort through and have the yes no maybes of the resume land this is actually, you know, a more active, but I would argue more efficient process, right? To find excellent talent off the bat. You know, when you think about, and this is where I have a problem with posting an individual job. Number one, the best people don't apply. We all know that at best, 5% of the people who apply are qualified. So if you get 100 postings, two or three of those people will be interviewed and one might get hired. Or if somebody get referred somewhere else or promoted. So you got 95% of the people who apply, you actually have to manage that process now. So you got to treat these people properly because they've applied. So now you got all this overhead that you're managing around people who you don't want to hire to begin with. That's a pretty inefficient system. And my approach is I only talk to people who are semifinalists. And some of them will get the job, some of them will get me referrals. So I, I, I treat these people royal. I mean, there's no question. I spend more time with fewer people and they're remarkable people. I've got to treat them, I don't want to say kid gloves because that's not really what I mean, but it's certainly respect their time, respect that this is a career move, respect that they're, it's not an individual decision. It's not just about the money and it's a deliberative process on their side and their family's side as well as on the company side. But you can't do that if you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of people who have applied that shouldn't have applied to begin with. Yeah. I've actually had this conversation with job board owners, the, some of the big ones. They don't like that. They they're in a the business of selling job postings. They're in a the business. Their turnover is good for job boards. They sell more postings. But it's when you look at it from that standpoint, oh, it's not such a good idea. I mean, they like turnover and churn. They're not in it for people to stay in a job two to three or four years. They're in it to create more job postings. So when you look at it just from that pure selfish perspective, this is why I'm kind of opposed to boring job postings. I'm not opposed to very compelling job postings that offer people to engage in a different kind of a conversation. Fair enough. So I do, you know, want to be pragmatic here for a moment and sort of consider the fact that, you know, this approach, I really appreciate it for, for it being very active versus passive and, and innovative, as I mentioned. I, I, I can see it working so well when it's when you're going outside the company, right? But a lot of organizations are really working on developing talent and in internal mobility. That is on like several of my clients, that is their one of their key deliverables this year is focusing on internal mobility strategies. And so, you know, and and in in certainly every company I've worked in has had a policy of posting every job, being transparent about it so that anybody within the organization could, you know, there'd be a minimum. It has to be posted internally for three days or five days. That is a really typical policy, at least here in Canada and with the U.S. organizations I've worked with. So what do you do there? Like, what 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 are your thoughts around 
the fact that, you know, like you have to be fair and ensure opportunities for for equity and inclusivity. And yet it does inflate potentially the pool of candidates that you have to work through and they may not all be qualified. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Let's say first off, the idea of internal mobility is mandatory. But what does that really mean? Now the question is, how do you implement that policy? That's where it's kind of silly. I mean, so when I make the pitch to my candidates that this is a long-term career move, it's not just a, what do you get on the start date move? It then says, okay, what, is, what does it take to have a long-term career move? It means that the job is what you're going to be doing in terms of the work is motivating and fulfilling, that the company is going to invest in you in terms of learning and training. The hiring manager is going to provide you the resources to become better. And the manager is going to promote you and offer you to other divisions and other opportunities. That is all part of this idea of hiring for the long term. We call it win-win hiring, where both the candidate and the hiring manager say, after a year, I'm so glad you took this job. And the candidate says, I'm so glad I'm here. But to fulfill that, the company's got to deliver on the promise. So totally support that. Is posting a job, a boring job, the meaning to me, that's kind of silly. That's not what you call, oh, I'm posting all these boring jobs and you have an opportunity to go to them. No, post real jobs with real meaning and give people a career opportunity and proactively tell them, hey, if they're good people, let's be real frank, Lisa, the reason that person reached out to you, you took that job because she knew you were good. Managers know people are good internally. So 25% of the people are already part of this internal mobility process. We already know they're good. You got to get the manager to be a little bit more open-minded. They, they don't want them to steal their best people. Well, too bad. You're going to be stolen. That part of your job is a third of half of your department has to leave in two years because she promoted them and developed. That's a hiring manager issue. So to me, the idea of giving a job posting internally before it's publicly outside is a silly answer to a very serious and important problem. It's like, we haven't really thought through it. So we'll do that. That's because we got to do it's the legal thing. So again, I am a real pragmatic engineer. Yeah. I mean, I literally, when I was 22 years old, I was assigned and I didn't know anything, but I was given the project of when do we blow up a nuclear missile and it's off course. Well, sometimes you got to dig deep into problems and understand the root cause and say, okay, is this really the best solution or is it a Band-Aid? In my mind, your question is a Band-Aid and it's kind of a silly solution to a very important and serious problem of internal mobility. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a potentially complex one, but I can tell you that people would be thinking about, oh, okay, okay, how do how do we translate this here? So, thanks for that answer. So, let's go on to the next stage around, you know, you mentioned finding the candidates and pre-qualifying them, and then it's interviewing them properly. So, what does properly look like to you? Well, this is a so I kind of remember a program I kind of looked out as part of this as my next-door neighbor was part of a business group. And we were chatting one day, this is 30 years, maybe more than that. And he said, Lou, why don't you speak to my business group? And his business group was a bunch of CEOs that got together every month. Well, it was a very formal group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. And there was another group called Vistage. And he introduced me to these groups. And then all of a sudden, I started talking about hiring people. And I would tell them, give them an overview. I didn't call it performance-based hiring at the time, but I would do this. And me and my two associates, we gave 400 presentations to business groups in the 90s. We'd walk out of those with search projects. One of them came in at the end of it and he said, what's the most important interview question of all time? I don't have time to be here, but I'm interviewing a candidate this afternoon. So this was the, but this is the essence of it. But as I, and I, so now I'm going to go to 1997 or 98, maybe it had to be 98 or 99. I had just written the first edition of Hire With Your Head. It's now in the fourth edition, but I was 
asked to speak at a recruiter convention in New York City at the Javits Center. And it was 1,800 people. And I had never spoken. I had spoken to 20 or 30 people. was fine. I still get nervous. And I got nervous at the time. This is 1,800. I was really, really nervous. So I said, oh, how am I going to handle this? But I had this kind of a trick question, which was the same one of, what's the most important interview question of all time? So I decided in front of this group of 1,800, I said, I'm going to do something a little bit weird. And what I did is, and I, somebody told me, said, just ask the audience a question and that'll reduce your own nervousness. So I started opening. So I'm going to ask everyone a question. I want you to think about the best thing you've ever done in your whole career. Because during the course of my conversation, I'm going to ask you to describe that to me. I'm going to interview everybody in this room, 1,800 people at the same time. And I said, but take 30 seconds and think of what you want to talk about for 15 minutes. The thing, single biggest thing you've ever accomplished in your whole career. So then so that kind of took the pressure off and people were laughing and I went off and pulled the chair up and I actually asked people and I just said, okay, describe that major accomplishment. What was the biggest thing? How did you get the assign? How did you get assigned that project? Did you volunteer for? And if you did, why? And if you were assigned it, why did someone assign it to you? Who was on the project team with you? What kind of skills did you use? How did you apply those skills? What did you learn? How did you learn those skills? Walk me through the biggest decision you made. Walk me through the biggest problem you had. And I went through a whole litany of things. Walk me through the environment. Who did you like best? Why did you like it? Why didn't you like it? Where'd you take the initiative? So I went through this whole, and I call it the most important interview question of all time. You can actually look on LinkedIn. It's still there. It was my first post on LinkedIn. I think it has 1.4 million people have read it by now. But that was the question. And I asked, and I was sitting on it. I mean, it was kind of weird because I was kind of nervous, but I sat up there and I had, but I had the question already figured out. And I, I have what I call the magic card, which has the question. And it has one about individual accomplishments and one about team accomplishments. And I said, what if I asked that question for two or three times over a period of five or 10 years? What would I learn about you? And I just asked people. They said, learn about my growth and development, what I like, what I don't like, where I'm good at, where I'm growing, the size and scope of it. So what I do is I dig deep into candidates' accomplishments related to the performance objectives of the job. So for, if I was going to ask you, Lisa, Lisa, you know, you've got to put a three-year product roadmap together of the whole internet space and how this company can maximize its growth. What have you ever accomplished that's like that? And I would really spend 10 or 15 minutes doing it. Walk me through the teams you had. How did you build and develop the teams? What was the biggest technical challenge? And so I'd really focus on asking detailed questions about the performance objectives I took during the intake meeting. And it's almost a mirror image of that kind of accomplishment. So that's really the core of it is really digging deep. And I, that's the evidence that I try to gather. And I remember one CEO, and I was a CFO for a cost guy. This guy was very, very soft-spoken. Everybody else in the company loved him. The CFO didn't like the guy. 10 minutes, this guy's totally incompetent. And I, when I talked to the CFO, I said, do you realize that this person accomplished something very, very similar, equally as complicated as what you want? And you didn't even give him a chance because she was, you thought he was soft-spoken. And yet that was the reason he was so successful. He worked with a UAW union. He worked with the IT people. He worked with the manufacturing people. He worked with the finance and accounting people. And you blew him away because he was soft-spoken. Right. He interviewed him the next day and said, this guy's remarkable. And that, again, that CFO began implementing this idea of knowing the job and really digging deep and getting evidence that this candidate can perform that job in that environment of equal complexity. Yeah, well, this, this gets at this whole idea of, of, of being alert to potential 
biases and assumptions that we make about people and where, you know, emotions come into play. Like I remember, you know, one hiring manager was known to to hire a lot of mini-me's. He would hire a lot of, you know, people in his own image and, you know, then struggled to to accomplish certain things that he needed to accomplish because what he really needed was to to build out skills that he did not have already on the team. So kudos for being able to help people see. Again, it was so, in my mind, it was selfish, Lisa. I wanted to make more placements. For sure. I had good people that I knew got blown out for stupid reasons, like you just said. So just like this one a couple of weeks ago about the communications. And I was doing the recruiting. Somebody else was doing it. But I knew that if I could define what good communication skills look like, as opposed to some biased understanding of it, that would change his mind. And it did. I mean, so it's the idea. But again, it was done selfishly of how can I make this system work better where people don't get excluded for stupid reasons? And it all started when you define the job. If you don't do that, you just set your stage for bias and incompetent (laughs) and invalid interviews. Well, it is funny. You know, I remember when I began my, I'm an executive coach as well. And when when I began my coach education, you know, just really digging into the fact that, you know, language is so different for all of us. And we make assumptions about what people mean. And we are meaning making machines ourselves. So, you know, I might tell you, I need somebody with amazing communication skills. And you immediately go, oh, well, for me, communication skills means... You know, and this is director, they, that must mean they need to present, you know, be a good presenter. But I actually mean they need to report, you know, write really good, thorough reports. Right. And so it it's all always bears, you know, going deeper, right? And and going below the surface and not taking... Well, it's having to do. So I would say, yeah. Lisa, what do you mean by good communication skills? Yeah. How are you going to make that judgment? Yeah. And how would I know? How would I see on the job and be able to assess right. if, if and it it's... Was, yeah. And I think too many recruiters are afraid to ask those questions. Now, I think there, if you're hiring someone reasonably, if you're hiring a 22-year-old or 24-year-old and a recruiter's 25, it's probably okay. But if a recruiter's 25 and they have to hire a director or a VP and they're dealing with a VP or a general manager, they get intimidated by that. And that's the problem by my experience. I knew work. I mean, and they, people, my clients knew that I knew the job. My, this CFO, he knew that I knew cost accounting. And I did, but I also conducted a very thorough interview. The guy with the plant knew that I had been through manufacturing plants and I was very comfortable walking around and saying, geez, why is that line laid out that way? Why is this pile of scrap sitting over here? So it's the idea of if you have some subject matter expertise in the job, you're more credible with the hiring manager and with the candidate. They trust you. And most recruiters don't have that level of trust with either Decisions. So all they do is they go between pushing paper back and forth. So that, to my mind, is a missing link. I think knowing the job and asking those questions helps bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. It's not the total thing, but it helps bridge the gap. Yeah. So, so you know, would you say that that's the biggest opportunity for talent leaders that that are listening today? You know, when it comes to talent acquisition, is it is it around that piece of the puzzle that you were just talking about? Yes. Or is it more about the job descriptions? No, I think, well, it is understanding the job and taking what I call a performance-based job description. Because th- the other key is, I think to get semifinalists, you can't get referrals. You can't even qualify a person unless you know the job. A good candidate knows that a recruiter is competent or not by the quality of questions. Good candidates, if they're not looking, will say, well, Lisa, tell me a little bit about the job. Oh, it's this, this, and it. And they know within seconds if this recruiter is competent. Seconds. And then if you're not competent, they tune you off and then you get a referral. So if you're competent and ask good questions, and but knowing the job is the core of that, everything else then kind of surrounds it to add to your skill set. It's just like any salesperson 
let's just think about it. You're buying any product, a new refrigerator, new TV, something designed for your home. If that sales rep doesn't know the product and how it works, you don't give them a lot of credibility. They're just a hustler. So it doesn't matter. So it's just like, well, you're, you're selling, you're affecting a person's life. Number one, the candidate's life and the hiring manager's life. Truth of the matter is the candidate it's, has more at stake than the hiring manager. You're affecting this chain. This candidate's going to take this job for this reason. And if you don't know it, you're affecting that life and that person in that family. Hiring managers, you know, they'll hire somebody else. So I really always take the perspective of I am doing something more important to the candidate. My clients don't think that way. They think, oh, I'm paying you the bill. I said, too bad. I'm affecting that person's life. But they also trust me because I really do my homework. I mean, that's the other point. I did my homework. I love that. Well, because, you know, I, so in, in, you know, my last few roles, my, my biggest passion is it's really, and my area of practice was around employee experience. So the entire employee journey from how we attract talent in, how we recruit and, you know, how they move through that process and how they feel as a result of it, even if they are declined, I want them to be ambassadors for the company and feel they were well-treated, respected, heard, and had good, you know, were taken care of essentially. So, so this is what you make me think of. I mean, this is, this is an opportunity to help people, if they do get hired, start out on a high, right? Really feeling understood, heard, and like, this is a great fit. This is a great decision for me and my future. Well, I think part of it is you can't do that with every single person who applies. That's why my idea is I spend more time with fewer people, but you got to have, they have to have a remarkable experience. They have to be interviewed properly and professionally. They have to know that there's no bias. You cannot do that when hundreds and hundreds of people come in and you get a hundred people, only three or four of every hundred get interviewed. One of 1% at most get hired. So you got 95% that you got to, so you water it down for the good before that you want to do it, but you watered it down to the 96. I said, no, don't even talk to the 96. Just talk to the, the four or the 20 to start. So it's really focusing on the semifinalists. And it's just like no recruit, no salesperson talks to every potential client in the world. They talk, they pre-qualify everybody before they call them. Why talent leaders don't understand that fundamental principle of you got to know your product and you got to pre-qualify your clients. Common sense. Yeah. Well, I think a lot do. I, I think a lot do. And and I think it is a it is a, a learning edge, shall we say, for, for others. But, I, you know, I think it's a really important point. So let's, you know, we've actually come to the, the end. I can't believe it. The time always flies. I'd love to find out from you. You've got your book, Hire With Your Head, that's got several editions, which sounds like a great place to start. What are some other resources you might recommend for listeners? Well, if I had to say from a recruiter, I always suggest read First, Break All the Rules, Gallup Group, which is and for hiring managers. I also suggest Steve Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yes. But from a recruiter standpoint, is also a book, I'm going to call it Spin Selling. I think there's some other words for it, Spin Selling and the Challenger Sales Model, where it's the idea of this is a solution selling. you got two very sophisticated buyers. You have to customize the solution, and traditional processes don't work. So you've got to challenge people's thinking. And you got to be comfortable doing that. And I think, but you got to know what you're talking about. And I think that, so it's, there's a lot of research. So it's becoming, so even when I became a recruiter, it was really learning sophisticated selling techniques. So I went to a lot of training. It wasn't recruiter training at the time because that was in the early eighties. There was some, but it was really, I went to some pretty sophisticated sales training and then adopted those techniques for recruiting. Yeah. I already kind of knew the work. So, and I stumbled upon it, but it was defining work as 
performance objectives rather than skills. That was, to me, was real critical. Yeah, there's a real, real connection with the marketing sales kind of, you know, approach or a model I agree with you. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and and I appreciate you bringing your, your perspective and experience. Great. Thank you very much for inviting me, Lisa. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your colleagues. Better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth.